Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. But let me be very clear to all of you, and I've been very clear to the president. He bears responsibilities for his words and actions. I've had it with this guy. Uh, what he did is unacceptable. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. Your Honor, the petitioners call Marjorie Taylor Greene to the stand. I was asking people to come for a peaceful march. It's absolutely the voters of Georgia who have been heard on this. She could wind up off the ballot. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Republican leader in the House tries to clean up the mess after being caught on tape saying he would urge Donald Trump to resign as president. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics. Some serious hardball being played in Washington. We'll let you hear the recordings and get analysis from the Sound On panel, with or without the music. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us. They will also weigh in on today's testimony from Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. There's been no shortage on this Friday. Russia trying to cut off Ukraine from the Black Sea. We'll talk as well about how the U.S. is responding with Bloomberg's Bill Ferries and look ahead to next week on Capitol Hill. Some important things to prepare for with Bloomberg government's Zach Cohen. Just imagine what the phone call was like. Kevin McCarthy, minority leader in the House, on the line with Donald Trump down at Mar-a-Lago after the tape played on cable news. A few other recordings have emerged since then on other networks, all from the New York Times, Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns. In their forthcoming book, This Will Not Pass, Kevin McCarthy talking with fellow Republican House members. Imagine a conference call following the riot and storming of the Capitol on January 6th. This is the chunk that first emerged. This is less than 24 hours ago, MSNBC. McCarthy talking with Congresswoman Liz Cheney about Donald Trump in comments that McCarthy's office denied that he had said. All right, let's hear it. This is what I said. Um, no, it'll pass the House. I think there's a chance it'll pass the Senate even when he's gone. Um, and I think there's a lot of different ramifications for that. Now, I haven't had a discussion with the Dems that if he did design, would it not happen? Now, this is one personal fear I have. Um, I do not want to get into any conversation about Pence pardoning anything like that. I mean, the only discussion I would have with him is that I think this will pass, and it would be my recommendation we should be done. Um, I mean, that would be my take, but I don't think he would take it, but I don't know. I don't know. Significant. Again, after McCarthy's office denied that the minority leader ever said that he would urge the president to resign. But since then, other recordings have emerged. They kind of rolled out throughout the day, like this one from CNN of the, of the of McCarthy again speaking to members of his Republican caucus on the line following January 6th. Let's listen. All right, I know, I know this is not uh, fun. I know this is not great. I know this is uh, very tough. But what I want to do, especially through here, 
is uh, I don't want to rush things. I want everybody to have all the information needed. Um, I've, I've had it with this guy. Uh, what he did is unacceptable. Um, nobody can defend that and nobody should defend it. Had it with this guy line was splashed across screens today. Uh, Jonathan Martin, Alex Burns say they have a lot more tape, by the way. The Washington Post now, though, reporting McCarthy and Trump spoke after the audio was released and the former president was not upset with McCarthy. Bloomberg reporting McCarthy has been working phones, calling key House Republicans to assure them that things are fine with his potential speakership in the balance. Now, President Biden weighs in unprovoked. He was talking at an Earth Day event today in Washington State, and he dropped this while describing how few Republicans, he was saying, would vote for climate legislation. Here's President Biden now. This ain't your father's Republican Party. Not not a joke. All you got to do is look what is being played on, played the, 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 this morning about the tape that was released anyway. You know, but all, all kidding aside, this is a MAGA party now. It's, you know, you got the, the senator from Texas and others. These, these guys are a different breed of cat. They're not like what I served with for so many years. And the people who know better are afraid to act correctly because they know they'll be primary. We need to turn this immediately to the sound on panel. And so we begin with Bloomberg Politics contributors, Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Rick, I want to start with you as as one of the key players in helping to shape the modern Republican Party. You've run a presidential campaign. You worked for years in the Senate, as our frequent listeners know, and a Republican White House. Are you a different breed of cat than Kevin McCarthy and his caucus? Is any of this going to matter? Well, I think Biden's comments are pretty accurate, which is this isn't your father's Republican Party. And I guess I'd be the father figure of that in in that category. And so, yeah, it's different. It's totally different. Uh, Constituencies have shifted over time and um, and leadership has shifted over time. And this is a totally different combination of voters who think they're Republican and or identify Republican and leaders who represent them. So he's right about that. Um, What is unconscionable is our leaders have, I guess, no guile about telling lies. I mean, the thing that I think is most telling about this current controversy related to uh, uh, McCarthy is that one day he completely denies saying what everybody has on tape at the time, <laughs> and then they play the tape. And yeah. and at some point, you've got to look yourself in the mirror and say, who am I kidding? Um, I, to use his phrase, I've really had it with this guy. The yeah. idea that he wants to be Speaker of the House you know, with this kind of conduct is reprehensible. Does this threaten his speakership as long as Donald Trump is apparently with him? Oh, I think I think this threatens his speakership uh, regardless of where Donald Trump is or not. I mean, I, the members are their own voting block, right? Donald Trump doesn't get a vote on this. He gets the sway votes. But a lot of these guys are going to be pretty fed up. They, A lot of them are fed up to begin with, right, that McCarthy mm-hmm. has not exhibited true GOP leadership, that he's, you know, bent on a lot of things and that he hasn't really gotten much done. And, and so there's, there are questions already in the caucus about his leadership and whether or not he's up for the job. And this just adds fuel to the fire. And, and regardless of what Donald Trump says, I think McCarthy's going to have a lot of work that he's got to do that he didn't think he had to do if he expects to be Speaker of the House. Do you have any theories, Rick, on, uh, on where this came from? A lot of people have different motivations. There are staffers on these calls. Uh, Liz Cheney's office was quick uh, to deny any suggestion that they had something to do with it. 
Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Liz Cheney because what he said is exactly why he vilified Liz Cheney for saying exactly the things that that Kevin McCarthy said, right? Liz Cheney has not ever said one thing that Kevin McCarthy isn't now publicly noticed as saying based on these recordings. So, So she's not fit for leadership then how is he fit for leadership under the same set of rules? Wow. So, uh, yeah, I mean, how this gets out, oh, my God, there are probably 100 people on that call, right? I mean, okay. uh, staff and members alike uh, and, and everybody at the time was in a full meltdown because, remember, this is a, the day after the, 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 the insurrection at the Capitol, right? People were worried about what was going to happen next. Yeah, mm-hmm. all these uh, uh, guards and, and police and military on Capitol Hill at the time. I mean, it was a scary situation i mean we we've kind of forgotten about that now but at the time everybody was on you know full alert and so my guess is anybody who could get on that call was on that call so wow. the, the the fact that it hasn't come out until now is extraordinary isn't that something that somebody would have had this on tape and it took these two enterprising reporters to dig it up and put it into a book so uh kudos to them they're number one on amazon they're gonna sell a lot of books based yeah. on this story and it's not on sale for another two weeks or something we bring in Jeannie shanzano as part two of our panel of course here on sound on Jeannie, they say they have more J- jonathan martin alex burns say a lot more where this came from audio recordings that could be damning as we work our way through this year or i guess when the book comes out uh i'm not sure how they plan to sort of spoon feed this to the media uh, but what does this mean, uh, you know, for for the midterm elections from the Democratic standpoint? I mean, they're making commercials f- for Nancy Pelosi right now. Yeah, making commercials as we speak. And we always knew Rick Davis was a different breed of cat. And you hear that's him. Right. You hear him talking sense. And that's the different breed of cat. Um, you know, they are going to keep dropping these as as book sales uh, rise. And, you know, it is stunning. I mean, let's just start from one of the basic lessons when a New York Times or any reporter comes to you and says we have an audio of you saying something did you say it maybe don't issue a blanket <laughs> denial if you're not really sure right um so you know and this is the man who as rick was just talking about he will in all likelihood he will be speaker of the house and that is not a job for the faint of heart especially in the modern era it is you been still feel that way or or you mean until this happened he was likely speaker I, I think he is still likely to be speaker of the house but my guess is it is going to be short-lived i think think we look for maybe Steve Scalise, maybe Elise Stefanik or one of them. And God bless anybody who takes that job. Keeping this Republican caucus together is going to be a task. And, you know, Kevin McCarthy, I think he's going to have a lot of I think he still will likely be elected. He'll have a lot of trouble doing it. And I think it'll then get turned over very quickly. And that's what's happened in the modern era. As you look through the most recent speakers of the House, getting these raucous caucuses to stay together, especially when they are this big, is very difficult to do. He couldn't even get them to follow him on something as simple as right after January 6th. So you can imagine where he's headed now. Rick, we get statements from Donald Trump when the wind blows. We got one from the shutdown of CNN Plus the other day. We got one about Piers Morgan. It's been radio silence, as far as my email can tell me, uh, since this happened. How come we haven't heard from Donald Trump? You know, it's an interesting question. Usually he'll berate uh, his target and then, like, you know, let them off the the carpet once he's gotten the uh, abject apologies in the public domain. Yeah, Um, right. Uh, I, I think this is probably because there is more to this. And I think that, that, that Trump is actually uh, being more cautionary than, than, than McCarthy was. And uh, believe me, 
Uh, Donald Trump retains the right to throw you under the bus at any given moment. He <laughs> does it all the time. But I would say one distinction. I mean, like we always talk about, oh, Donald Trump this and Donald Trump that. But this is going to have these comments by McCarthy are going to have a impact with voters. Right. Donald Trump. Sure. He has an impact with voters, but we know those voters. Yeah. What we don't know is what impact this might have on midterm voters who may lose confidence in the GOP leadership. Boy, another brick in the wall here. I guess a brick in the road to the midterms. Great analysis from Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. As I was looking forward to our panel, they'll be back as Marjorie Taylor Greene testifies which all ties into what we're talking about. Bill Ferries is up next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. On Bloomberg Radio. The headline on the terminal, Kremlin seeks control of southern Ukraine, Russian general says, as we look ahead to what could be a pivotal weekend in the war. We are joined right now on Bloomberg Sound On by Bill Ferries, who heads Bloomberg's national security team. And Bill, I know this has been a very busy time. I'll point our listeners to the Ukraine update that you can find on the terminal, which is constantly evolving throughout the day. And it's been an indispensable resource for all of us. So great job on that, Bill. And thank you for joining us here. It looks like the strategy here uh, has shifted quite a bit over the past couple of weeks after the the, the Russian army stopped down and uh, regrouped, spent some time shaping, as the Pentagon likes to say. It's been to the east and the south. What exactly is Russia trying to do here? Are, are, are they, in fact, narrowing their goals? I think uh, they certainly are after effectively getting stymied in, in their attempts to uh, really uh, rush into Ukraine at the beginning of the war and try to take Kiev and try to take some of the bigger cities. And they really found that that style of urban warfare was not going to work effectively uh, in a country as large as Ukraine. So they've, you know, they've pulled back a lot of their forces. They started shifting them uh, east. They've had to rebuild many of their battle units. And, uh, and they seem to be focusing really uh, on the much more of the coastal area, the east and the south of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen them consolidate uh, some gains in Mariupol. Um, it sounds like there's still uh, there's still some fighters there, but they have uh, the Russian forces have the city surrounded. And I think they want to try to uh, effectively make Ukraine a landlocked country. Well, that's interesting. This major general who you're writing about suggesting that they, they want to seek control of southern Ukraine. That's exactly right. Now, connecting the dots to cut off Ukraine from the Black Sea. Is that the goal now? It really is. It would, uh, it would really make Ukraine more of a kind of a rough state. It would take a, a significant amount of territory away from it. You know, they've had those two separatist regions uh, battling the Ukrainian government since 2014. Yeah. Uh, and I think Russia would like to see those areas grown a bit, connected. And if you uh, if you make Ukraine landlocked, you make it, uh, you know, you, you cut it off to some degree from the rest of the world. Uh, it could still trade across its land borders and things like that. But it's, 
it, it does lose a connection to the world that it's, it's had that uh, that's helped make it uh, successful and independent. Yeah. Considering what we've seen in terms of just failures on the part of the Russian military. Some are suggesting that these narrowing uh, goals here by the Russian military would indicate that once Russia can control the Donbass and the southern coast, which appears to be within Russia's grasp, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that that might actually indicate the end of this campaign, knowing that May 9th is an important holiday for Russia. Is there any chance that that's done by then and that's the end of this war? I don't know if it would be the end of the war. I mean, when you you know when you talk with Ukrainians, they'll uh, they'll say, listen, you know, from from 2014 when Russia seized Crimea up till the start of this war, there was an active conflict going on uh, in the east uh, in the east of the country yeah. with these separatist areas. So you could have a situation where uh, on May 9th, uh, Vladimir Putin is able to give a speech saying that. Uh, you know, Russian forces have taken over more territory or taken more cities or even he might say they've accomplished their goal if it gets that far. Uh, but I don't think that means the end of the conflict, because I think if, if that's where we are at that point, uh, I think you'll continue to see the NATO uh, allies uh, pouring weapons into the country. I think you'll uh, continue to see uh, a battle along the front there, mm-hmm. um, similar to what we've been seeing, you know, what we saw prior to this conflict starting with uh, with uh, places like the Donbass sure. um, ever since 2014. General uh, Mark Kimmett, retired General Kimmett, was on the broadcast a couple of days ago and suggested that once Mariupol falls, assuming that that does happen, the Ukrainian military gets back to doing what it does best, and that's conducting sort of guerrilla operations as opposed to a real army-to-army fight. Is, is that, in fact, an upper hand at that point? As counterintuitive as it sounds, once Mariupol falls, Ukraine gains the upper hand over the Russian military. Well, I, uh, I'm not a military strategist myself. Um, I do think, you know, Ukraine has had its more elite forces in the east. Mm-hmm. And so uh, some of those troops, have, I, I think, are still holed up in Mariupol. So their fate remains uncertain. Um, and I think uh, there's, you know, the next, I think the next twist, uh, turn of the screw here would be Russian forces perhaps looking further south towards Odessa, uh, which is uh, Ukraine's biggest port there. And if, uh, if they decide to, to try to go for Odessa, that would be another urban battle uh, that the Ukrainians have done well in. Uh, but it would also be kind of a last stand in many, uh, in many senses, because that's, uh, that's, uh, a, a city the Ukrainians really can't afford to lose. Bill Ferry's President Biden says he's going to make a big request to Congress, more money for military aid next week. Do we have any sense how big that request might be? Well, we've seen, you know, multiple packages of $800 million um, getting announced in recent weeks. I would be surprised if it's not uh, something in the billions of dollars. Uh, and Speaker Nancy Pelosi has said she's going to, you know, fast track any package that comes. I think we'll be getting more information about that early next week. Bill Ferries runs our national security team here at Bloomberg News, and it's been a very busy team, as you might suspect, these past weeks. Bill, thanks so much for your insights today. Thanks for having me, Joe. Coming up, we'll talk more about the president's big ask to Congress next week. Is any number too big? And a few other important things to prepare for as lawmakers return to the Capitol will discuss with Bloomberg government Zach Cohen. Later, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene testifying in court today about the January 6th attack on the Capitol. 
some remarkable questions and answers and non-answers. We're listening so you don't have to. And we'll reassemble the panel to discuss later. Stay with us on the fastest hour in politics. We'll check markets next. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. We spoke yesterday around this time about President Biden's latest shipment of heavy artillery to Ukraine. He announced this $800 million shipment, big shopping spree, all the the big stuff, the howitzers, the javelins, the artillery shells, everything going over. But he says he's, well, he's drawn down essentially all the money already that Congress has set aside. So we have to go back around and and allocate more money if we're going to keep sending weapons to Ukraine. And as he said, he wants to do this in uninterrupted fashion. Listen to President Biden at the White House here from yesterday. I've almost exhausted the drawdown authority I have that Congress authorized for Ukraine in a bipartisan spending bill last month. In order to sustain Ukraine for the duration of this fight, next week I'm going to have to be sending to Congress a supplemental budget request to keep weapons and ammunition flowing without interruption. The old supplemental. And without interruption. As I read from Bloomberg government, and talking to Steny Hoyer, of course, the majority leader in the House, he says they'll vote next week on a bill that would make it easier to send Ukraine defense systems titled the Ukraine Democracy Defense Lend-Lease Act. It temporarily waives certain requirements for lending defense items, it's, you know, like the one that we were using with the Europeans and our allies in World War II. The Senate passed it by voice vote, I should say, on April 6th. How much this uh, request is going to be, however... Uh, remains a question, as we were just discussing a short time ago with Bill Ferries. It's a pleasure to bring in another voice from Bloomberg on this. Zach Cohen with Bloomberg Government, congressional reporter. Zach, thanks for being here. Uh, we, we're, we're hearing in the billions. Is that about all we know about this request from the White House that's looming? We don't really know the the top line yet. Congress had previously signed off on $13.6 billion, I think roughly split between you know military aid, weapons, um, and the other half being for humanitarian aid. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, you know, the Biden administration is saying they've basically spent all that money in the months since it was approved. Um, and there's bipartisan interest in making sure that um, Congress can sign off on more of those funds. I think the congressional schedule gets a little interesting, right? Because they haven't actually said, they haven't sent the request over to the Hill for how much money they're going to need. And the House is only supposed to be in for a week next week and before they go on recess again. And so that'll be worth watching. We'll see how quickly the House can take up this request. Um, yeah, turn well, we know they're motivated. I just, how does this intersect or how would it intersect with the Lend-Lease Act? Does one allocate money and the other uh, or one earmark money, if that's a, for lack of a better term, and the other d- uh, sort of dictate how it is spent? The Lend-Lease Act, I think, is more of an authorization as opposed to actually spending more money. It's similar mm-hmm. to what the United States did uh, during World War II yeah. when it basically loaned weapons to the uh, United Kingdom in order to fight the, the Nazis uh, in Europe. So those would be and, weapons that we already own that would be so as opposed to buying new stuff for Ukraine. That would be my understanding, whereas this you know, spending bill would be to actually get the money out the door in order to buy the stuff that would then yeah. be you know, need to be sent over. Exactly. Is it a matter of just getting enough cash, billions or whatever, to keep that uninterrupted flow? Or would there be some sort of language in the bill, uh, if if we even know this, Zach, that would that would suggest uh, almost a retainer, like a rotating payment that would be going to Ukraine? 
I don't think we're sure yet. And so I think that's what we're all sort of waiting with bated breath. And so that's why I think uh, lawmakers are particularly interested in seeing what the actual request is from the White House um, that we need to get sent over before they can, you know, then turn it into the legislative text that then could be taken up by both the House and the Senate. Right. I think the, the hope is to get it, whatever it is, across the finish line very quickly. So this goes to uh, the Rules Committee next week. Uh, is there time? You mentioned the the calendar here. I mean, I realize that lawmakers are passionate about this, but I mean, they'll have, what, four days to make all that happen? That's right. So at least on the Lend-Lease bill, um, they've already said you know, that they plan to bring it up to the House Rules Committee that would basically allow them uh, to bring it up for a vote without requiring the two-thirds majority necessary under what's called a suspension of the okay. rules. Basically, mm-hmm. just make sure that nothing uh, gets out of hand and they can pass this bef- uh, this Lend-Lease bill before they do leave for the recess. And so that should be taken up sometime in the back half of the week. And the front half of the week, I expect you hear more about the spending bill and how large it is and potentially what it gets tied in with. There's some other matters that lawmakers want to get done, like uh, more COVID aid, uh, and uh, especially for uh, the global vaccination effort. So that's worth watching as well. Is that going anywhere? I mean, now that the mask mandate is down as well, my God, I just imagine that this complicates the debate even more. Are they anywhere near a deal on COVID funding? I think the big issue is um, I think it was about $10 billion that was dropped out of yes, a, right. a sort of nascent deal for uh, vaccines um, across the world, not in the United States, which obviously has plenty of vaccines to go around. Um, but they couldn't find the pay for, so to speak, you know, the money to actually pay for all of these vaccines uh, for third world countries. And so that's something that, again, has sort of bipartisan interest. Um, but it just had to be paid for. And so that maybe they tie in that funding that sort of has fallen off. Um, into a, a broader package that deals with Ukraine as well and with the, the rest of the, the COVID aid they were looking for to help pay for things like therapeutics, which is something that the Biden administration is looking at expanding next week, our, um, our colleagues have reported. Boy, that would be a big deal, suggesting earlier as well that this stuff was going to start running out if they didn't get more money. Uh, Zach Cohen is helping you sound smart at the cocktail parties this weekend with one more uh, important items act that hasn't gotten a lot of uh, attention, and that is uh, votes on a couple of important Fed nominees. Uh, Lael Brainerd, Lisa Cook have their week next week. That's right. They're going to come up for procedural votes early next week, as soon as Monday, uh, for one of them. Uh, and these are obviously the nominees to the the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, basically the folks that you know drive the interest rates, as all of our listeners know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those folks have been tied up for a while as Republicans were protesting the nomination of Sarah Bloom Raskin, yeah. um, whose nomination was eventually pulled because of the sort of bipartisan opposition to her nomination. And now that that's been cleared, You've got these four other nominees, including Chairman Jerome Powell, that are working their way through the Senate floor. And we expect that to happen over the next couple of weeks now that they've sort of started this process of um, limiting debate on those nominations. And they could be confirmed as soon as this week. And that would be a very big deal, obviously, for the Federal Reserve, for the for the economy. If this has just been absurd, how long this particular one is dragged out here. Um, But then we'll have to work on finishing the whole Sarah Bloom Raskin story. Uh, with another nomination to follow. Uh, All right, so you're prepared. You know, let everyone know that Zach Cohen sent you. I appreciate the time, Zach. Bloomberg Government Congress reporter. He hangs out in the pantry with our colleagues, Emily Wilkins, and, of course, Jack Fitzpatrick. Bloomberg Government up on K Street. We'll reassemble the panel next. you got to hear what Marjorie Taylor Greene and what the lawyers were saying. A wild day in court. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Law gets right to it with the Marjorie Taylor Greene testimony today. Taylor Greene hearing long on theatrics, short on answers. The headline from John Holland, who writes more than three hours into a hearing into whether Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene supported an insurrection, an attorney representing Georgia voters seeking to block her from re-election played a scene from Independence Day, the 25-year-old movie about aliens attacking Washington. Yeah, this was something to see. It was quite a performance all the way around. The hearing based on a complaint by Georgia voters. We talked about this a little earlier in the week. If you're just catching up here, they argued the 14th Amendment, which prohibited those who fought against the U.S. during the Civil War from holding office applies to any member of Congress who supported the January 6th assault. So you can imagine the line of questioning. We saw tweets, we saw videos, we saw quotes put up on the screen in front of the room. Attorney Andrew Selly says he wanted to show Green supported the insurrection here. So just for a taste, as I also look at the Washington Post, uh, also very accurate reporting, in that very few questions were answered dozens of times during Friday's hearing, the Post writes, Green could not recall her tweets or statements related to the attack. It seemed as if she could hardly remember what happened on January 6th, other than the work they were doing at the time, as she kept saying, to object. Here's just, just a little bit of a taste here, of the back and forth, as uh, the attorney, again, Andrew Selly, is asking about whether she spoke with other members of government about this big, looming, as we heard, protest that was coming to Washington. You spoke to Representative Biggs or his staff about that fact, didn't you? I do not remember. How about Representative Gosar? I'm sorry, I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Did you talk to people at the White House about the fact that there were going to be large demonstrations in, on January 6th in Washington? I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Prior to January 6th, Representative Green, did anyone ever mention to you the possibility that there might be violence in Washington on January 6th, 2021? I don't remember. I don't remember. Also said she did not remember if she urged the president to impose martial law to stay in power ahead of January 6th. Now, as I mentioned, this uh, included a video, uh, several actually videos, all of which Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene pointed out were edited and therefore suggested they were not accurate. Uh, In one case, it was this sort of call to action, uh, if you will. And this is back when she had a Twitter account that's since I realize uh, been deleted and, and made this particular call to action saying that, you know, we will not go quietly into the night. And that apparently came from a movie you recognize here again is attorney Andrew Selly. The last thing you say in the video is, we aren't the people that are going to go quietly into the night. Do you recall that part? Yes. Now, that phrase, we aren't the people that are going to go quietly into the night, 
That's not something that you came up with on your own, is it? I have no idea what you mean. Well, that's something that you borrowed from a movie script, right? I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. You borrowed that line from the movie Independence Day, right? <laughs> no. Yes. This really happened. Let's go to the as well. The 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday. <laughs> he rolls but as the day when the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night. Oh, my God. Jeannie Shanzano, you are right. We are living in an SNL skit. Let's reassemble the panel. Jeannie's here, of course. Rick Davis as well, Bloomberg Politics contributors. That was real, Jeannie. That was, of course, probably also the cold open on Saturday Night Live tomorrow. It's hard to tell the difference. When when you're playing it, I'm thinking, this can't be in a courtroom for a serious <laughs> It's on <hearing."> for hours. <laughs> it is. And, you know, just to bring this full circle, maybe this is why Kevin McCarthy was saying after January 6th he wished that big tech companies would strip some of his members of their social media accounts. <laughs> because <laughs> this is the kind of thing that gets people in trouble. Um, you know, it, this was a, a hearing. <laughs> I mean, I was fascinated by the fact that the, the judge, who, who, of course, isn't going to be deciding whether she's on the ballot or not but he at points was telling the attorneys this is not a theater you know you're going (laughs) too far Um, and rightly so but I think it's important to remember he's not going to decide if she's on the ballot he's Mm. pushing this to the Secretary of State who himself was under fire Brad Raffensperger from Donald Trump over 2020 so you know we cannot escape what happened in November 2020 and on January 6th it is still very much with us and we're going to have to hear what the judge says to Raffensperger and what Raffensperger decides. And he himself is in a pretty tough primary on May 24th. Yeah, right. Just to add, you know, the, the frosting here for an SNL skit, Matt Gates was in the front row for all of this today. Uh, Rick, I guess to provide moral support, they, they, they had kind of a road show going together and they frequently fielded questions about January 6th together. But if this went so far off the rails, is anyone taking it seriously enough to actually impact Marjorie Taylor Greene's political career. Yeah, I don't think the the hearing today itself is going to be much of a news story beyond today, although it is a highly entertaining Friday news story. <laughs> it was. Uh, but, uh, but at the end of the day, I think it does uh, play into the narrative that's a much more important narrative that we were talking about earlier at the top of the show, which mm-hmm. is uh, what Republican leadership were saying in the House about this. Uh, uh, incursion into the Capitol and the fact that Donald Trump uh, owed some uh, responsibility for it. And, and, and so it just resurrects this entire narrative about how uh, I would say uh, kowtowing to Donald Trump, the Republican Party in the House representatives especially, has become. And that doesn't help the party. That doesn't help her. Uh, she's going to get reelected if she's on the ballot. I mean, she is, it's a it's a one of the most Republican districts in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I do think it's a little ironic, as Jeannie said, that the guy who is uh, going to decide whether she's on the ballot or not is the one that Donald Trump <laughs> and other senators like Lindsey yeah. Graham lobbied yeah. to to find enough votes to win the Georgia state election. So real. Uh, it's really unreal. Um, and uh, honestly, it's more fit for daytime TV than the United <laughs> States of America. Who did but. she talk to last night, Rick? I mean, you've, you've suggested that she's really not uh, well-liked in the caucus. It's not like she's got a lot of people uh, rallying to her support. But if everyone is shutting down now all at the same time, they clearly realize 
you know, that they could be in some danger here. Did did she speak with anyone in the Republican leadership or is she on her own here? Oh, I think she's completely on her own. You know, remember, we've we the Republican leadership already took her out of committees. She's yeah. had some really outrageous statements. Um, there's been talk of censuring her in the committee within the caucus, right? I mean, this is a caucus that, you know, makes Attila the Hun looks liberal, and 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 yet she can't even get along with that crowd. Um, the fact that she only had Matt Gatz there, uh, it, it wasn't a testament to her popularity. It was a demonstration of her unpopularity. Yeah. Uh, pretty remarkable uh, cast of characters here and series of events, Jeannie. Does anything come from it, though? You know, I, I actually think it does. I, I, I think she'll stay on the ballot. But, you know, that that old James Carville was out the other day saying what Democrats have to do in a year in which, you know, let's face it, it's going to be very, very tough for Democrats right. is what they have to do is show the crazy in the Republican Party. And the more you have this kind of display going on, and it's not just Marjorie Taylor Greene, it's Andy Biggs, it's Paul Gosar, it's Madison Cawthorn. Look at the pictures out of about him today that's, the more you have the crazy on display yeah. the narrower the republican well, how about showing the not crazy in the republican party wouldn't that be maybe it's it, hard well, to do though right? is that true point? rick you know I, I i think that that a democrat running against a republican in a in a swing state is going to have to decide what issues they think voters are really going to care about most of the last 15 minute conversation is not going to trigger a lot of voter backlash right there this most people will not even think about this three or four months from now now there are primaries happening in may that this could have some impact on and uh and and through the summer but the reality is uh this is not the kind of thing that drives a voter and at the end of the day, that's the that's the real test uh, is, is is do you have an issue that you want to talk about as a candidate, either as a Democrat against Republicans or vice versa, that is actually going to move votes? And right now, that's still the economy. That's, you know, putting jobs back together. That's inflation. Uh, and, and and I doubt if this is going to distract real campaigns, you know, into the into the summer and fall. And for that reason, uh, you seem to think that Kevin McCarthy is in fair shape right now i mean based on what you just said who's talking about any of this january 6 business by the end of the year yeah you know it's interesting i mean you know he's gotten expectations so high that if republicans don't get you know 40 new members in the house of representatives in addition to what they have today yeah. it may look like a disappointment and 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 that will be pinged back on him because of some of the comments that he's made that are out in tape and and that we i think he has got a personal issue he's got to deal with which is uh, how do you cut through a, a press narrative where every day there seems to be some new in transgression against Trump or Trump says something about him? I mean, th- this is not exactly what you wanted going into the most important election no. in your in your career to try and become a uh, speaker. And by the way, people have been throwing out of speakers jobs for less than this. So uh, he may actually get elected, but not last very long. Wow. The thing is, does any of it override inflation, Jeannie? I think it does. We were talking the other day, Ron DeSantis, it's all a culture war. Inflation's mm-hmm. critical, but these culture war issues and overreach by the Republicans, it's probably the best they that the Democrats have to voters. run on. Rick and Jeannie, our panel are the best. We'll all meet back here Monday. I'm Joe Matthew. This is.